Okay, so we're reading Proverbs chapter 24, starting at verse 3. By wisdom, a house is built, and through understanding, it is established. Through knowledge, its rooms are filled with rare and beautiful treasures. A wise man has great power, and a man of knowledge increases strength. For waging war, you need guidance, and for victory, many advisers. Wisdom is too high for a fool. In the assembly at the gate, he has nothing to say. He who plots evil will be known as a schemer. The schemes of folly are sin, and men detest a mocker. If you falter in times of trouble, how small is your strength? Rescue those being led away to death. Hold back those staggering towards slaughter. If you say, but we knew nothing about this, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who guards your life know it? Will he not repay each person according to what he has done? Eat honey, my son, for it is good. Honey from the comb is sweet to your taste. Know that wisdom is sweet to your soul. If you find it, there is future hope for you, and your hope will not be cut off. Do not lie in wait like an outlaw against a righteous man's house. Do not raid his dwelling place. For though a righteous man falls seven times, he rises again. But the wicked are brought down by calamity. Do not gloat when your enemy falls. When he stumbles, do not let your heart rejoice. Or the Lord will see and disapprove and turn his wrath away from him. Do not fret because of evil men or be envious of the wicked, for the evil man has no future hope, and the lamp of the wicked will be snuffed out. Fear the Lord and the King, my son, and do not join with the rebellious, for those two will send sudden destruction upon them, and who knows what calamities they can bring. Thanks, Sarah. Good morning, everyone. Do keep that passage open. And there's a, uh, an outline on the inside of your sheet if you'd like to follow along. And uh, may I add uh, my welcome and my wishes for a happy new year uh, to Gareth. So I wonder if you're facing this new year with hope and optimism, you know, new year, new you, fresh start, or with fear and trembling. Of course, there are many external factors which might affect your mood going into 2024, whether that's what's going on in our world or what's going on in your home or workplace or school. But I think we all know a lot depends on our outlook on life, doesn't it? I read an article this week called Why the World Should Fear 2024 that had as its conclusion, as bad as things are, they could always be worse. <laughs> Is that how you see the world? Are you a bit of an or a glass half empty kind of person? Or perhaps you're at the other end of the spectrum. Perhaps you're more like Pollyanna, who plays the glad game and sees good and hope in every situation. 
Or like Paddington Bear, who says, if you're kind and polite, the world will be right. I wonder whether you, where you'd put the book of Proverbs on that spectrum. Many who've read this book have put it firmly towards the Paddington slash Pollyanna end of things. In fact, it's had its share of criticism for that. Proverbs, some have said, is far too naive. It describes the, how the world should be, but not really how the world actually is. For that, it's argued, you need to balance the sunny optimism of Proverbs with the earthy skepticism of Ecclesiastes or the suffering lament of Job or the Psalms. Proverbs, with its insistence that wickedness will receive its comeuppance and the fear of the Lord leads to prosperity and long life, it, it just doesn't really match up with reality. Well, as we conclude this short series in the 30 Sayings of Solomon, we're going to see that that caricature of Proverbs is simply not true at all. We'll see today, as we've seen through the rest of this series, that there is plenty of short-term pain promised along the path of wisdom. Proverbs is not giving us a glib, Pollyanna-ish optimism that's detached from reality. Actually, what it's doing is showing us true reality. We might cynically believe that in this broken world, there's no point living God's way. But Proverbs wants to realign our thinking to show us the justice and order and godliness which underlies this world and which is always the right and good and successful way to live. So let's dive in and think about why wisdom works, why wisdom works. Look at uh, verse 3 with me, 24 verse 3. By wisdom a house is built and through understanding it is established. Through knowledge, its rooms are filled with rare and beautiful treasures. Throughout these chapters, Solomon has been addressing his son and urging him to build his life on a solid foundation. We've heard him stress the importance of listening carefully to God's word, bending his heart towards it, having it nourish his belly and taking it on his lips. We've seen him urge him not to walk closely with those who would lead him on paths to short-term gain and self-indulgent pleasure-seeking, but instead to aim to bring joy to his father and mother by submitting to their discipline and bringing up his own children with that same dedication to their long-term flourishing and joy. Solomon wants his son to lay the groundwork for a life well-lived, a life that begins with the fear of the Lord and lives according to his good words. And these two verses, verses 3 and 4, sum up the value of that. If you commit to the life of wisdom, then you will build a stable house on a good foundation. A friend of mine recently discovered that underneath his house there was some sort of cavity. It was causing a few problems. The house was subsiding slightly, some cracks in the walls. And so the insurance company paid for a, a bit of a quick fix. They had this material, apparently, this liquid, which you can pump into a cavity and it'll set firm and, and stabilize the house. And they estimated that it would take a, a few uh, hundred liters of this stuff to fill the void. Well, after pouring several thousand liters under the floorboards, they decided to have a proper look and realized that the house had basically no foundation whatsoever. It was built on apparently on, apparently on something like a bat cave, this massive underground cavern. And so there's a very expensive underpinning project going on at his home at the moment. Solomon is saying here, don't make that mistake. Get proper foundations in early so you can have a stable and solid house. But it's not just the fabric of the house which will be pleasing and long-lasting. It's the contents as well. Look at verse 4 where it says, A life lived with wisdom is like a house filled with rare and beautiful treasures. 
I guess these days, many of our houses look quite similar on the inside, don't they? Many many of us have a front room dominated by the same kind of large flat screen TV. We have billy bookcases and poang armchairs from Ikea. Bought another one of those yesterday, actually. Uh, In Lancaster, we've all got Chaz Jacobs prints on our walls. We've all got air fryers in our kitchens now after Christmas. And that's fine. That's our house for sure. But it's a wonderful thing, isn't it, to go into a home which is filled with things that no one else seems to have. Furniture which has been passed down through generations and lovingly maintained. Original paintings and fascinating little ornaments. Books on the shelves which you won't find at Waterstones. A life which is not lived in conformity to everybody else and so is strangely and distinctively beautiful. And that's the picture here. A life of wisdom is actually a rare thing. Most people in our world will choose the folly of not knowing God and not walking in his ways. But it is a beautiful, attractive, and distinctive thing to walk in the way of the wise, as we were seeing actually in 1 Peter all the way back in 2023. But why does this wisdom work? How can we be sure that a life spent listening to God's word and living in obedience to it really does lead to a beautiful life with solid foundations? Well, for that, we need to look back at something Solomon said right at the beginning of his book. Let me draw your attention on the screen to these words from chapter 3. Proverbs 3, 19 to 20 says this. By wisdom, the Lord laid the earth's foundations. By understanding, he set the heavens in place. By his knowledge, the deeps were divided and the clouds let drop the dew. Let's look at that um, verse on the screen and then look down with me to 24 verses 3 and 4. Do you see the similarities there? Solomon says to his son, build your house, build your life on wisdom, understanding, and knowledge. And he's already told us in chapter 3, because that's exactly the way God has built the entire universe. The world, the earth, and the heavens are built by God with wisdom, understanding, and knowledge. He designed them to work a certain way. He put his wisdom and understanding and knowledge into them. God's words, you see, are the fundamental building blocks of this world. Science will tell us that this world is made up of chemical elements, and elements can be broken down into atoms, and atoms are made up of particles, and particles are made of quarks or waves or strings or something. And that's cool, that's interesting. But God tells us that underneath all of those things, the elements and the quarks and the electrons, stands God's voice. He spoke this world into being, and it is sustained not by impersonal mechanical forces, but by his powerful, wise, understanding, knowledgeable words. And so when someone chooses to build their life on that same word, they are building their house on the same fundamental building blocks which the whole universe rests upon. They are living life as it was designed to be lived, as it's meant to be. Or to put it in language that we often hear in our world, we'll be living in harmony with the universe. That's what a lot of people crave, isn't it? And it's easy to understand why. Our lives can feel fragmented and disjointed, as if there's something off kilter, something that doesn't quite fit. And we want to fix that. We want to belong, we want to live a life which is harmonious and whole and happy, and and people look for that in all sorts of different places, in communion with nature, 
in so-called spiritual practices, in exercise and wellness, and certainly could in some of those things. But that sense of fragmentation, of disjointedness, comes not because we're detached from nature, but because we're detached from God, the author of creation. To come back to him, to begin again to listen to his word, is to start to live a life which can be truly whole again. However, as we've seen throughout this series, it's not the only way you can make life work in the short term. Let me show you another passage from an earlier chapter of Proverbs on the screen. This is from chapter 1. Listen to this. My son, if sinners entice you, do not give in to them. If they say, come along with us, let's lie in wait for someone's blood, let's waylay some harmless soul, let's swallow them alive like the grave and whole like those go down to the pit, we will get all sorts of valuable things and fill our houses with plunder. Throw in your lot with us and we will share a common purse. My son, do not go along with them. Do not set foot on their paths, for their feet rush into sin, their swift to shed blood. How useless to spread a net in full view of all the birds. These men lie in wait for their own bloods. They waylay only themselves. Such is the end of all who go after ill-gotten gain. It takes away the lives of those who get it. Again, did you see the similarity there between these verses and 24 verse 4? You can actually fill your house with valuable things and treasure another way. Sin does pay for a time. There's always a shortcut to an easier life if you want it. But as we read in those verses in chapter 1, in the long term, folly fails. And throughout these series, we've seen why folly fails. It's because this world is not a machine. That's something we perhaps struggle to see in our own day and age. We live in a world which is dominated by machines and technologies and processes, and we're able to express and understand a lot of the way our world works through scientific and mathematical models. But the danger for us is that we start to believe that those scientific and mathematical models of how the universe works are really fundamentally how the universe works. So we invent a clockwork mechanism which models the movement of the planets around our sun, And so we begin to think that the universe really does run on something like clockwork. Or we invent a computer that has a thing we call memory, and so we begin to think that our own memories, our own brains are just like a computer. We begin to see the world as just one massive, impersonal, mechanical machine. So what if that's true? If the world is just a machine then we might see God's word as like a user manual for the machine, and that's probably a good place to start. But if you're clever and cunning, you might find a workaround that the user manual doesn't recommend. You might find a shortcut or a tweak to make the machine work better for you. And if the user manual doesn't like it or says that you'll invalidate the warranty if you do that, then who cares? That's only advice doesn't really matter, and we've got better ideas and newer understanding now that will help the machine work for us. What if that's not true? What if this is not a mechanical world, but a personal one? When we find a shortcut which the Bible calls sin, but which works for us, what if that is not just a deviation from the user manual, but a massive insult to the God who built this world? 
and sustains it every single day with his wise and powerful word. We've seen that, haven't we? That it is the personal covenant Lord who ultimately guarantees justice in this world. It is his wisdom which shows us the design and the plan for this world, not to just to make life work for us, but to live a life which pleases him and which can showcase the rare and beautiful treasure of his glory and his goodness. And although sinners may prosper and saints may suffer for a time, even as we sit among the ruins of a perfect world, which is under the curse of sin, wisdom still generally works, and it points forward to the time when God will perfectly restore his design and plan. And so as we incline our ear to God's word, we're not just getting helpful advice, we are deepening our relationship with the person whose word created and sustains our whole universe. That's why wisdom works in our personal world. That's how wisdom works. Secondly, let's think about how wisdom wins in verse 5 to 12. Now, we might have found uh, in this series the wisdom in this section of Proverbs quite directly applicable so far in this series, if you've been here with us. We've been thinking about how to work and who to sleep with and what to eat and what to drink. But now we get something that perhaps feels a little more detached from most of our experience. We need to remember that this is first and foremost the wisdom of King Solomon, and therefore there's a fair amount of it which has a kingly context in mind. In this next section, we have advice for waging war and as to whose voice should be heard in the gate, that is the sort of public assembly where decisions are made, and how to win victories. Perhaps we think this is applicable only for the times when we play the new board games we received for Christmas. But we mustn't make the mistake of thinking this is not wisdom for us. Instead, we should marvel at how, about how the wisdom of Solomon tur- turns worldly thinking on its head and realigns us to true reality. Let me show you what I mean. Let's read from verse 5. Verse 5. A wise man has great power, and a man of knowledge increases strength. For waging war, you need guidance, and for victory, many advisers. In verse 5, you can see there, wisdom is allied with strength. In fact, there are four different Hebrew words in that verse, which means something like strength or strong or power or might. Wisdom makes you strong, says verse 5. It increases your power and makes victory more likely. Now, that might make us feel a little bit uncomfortable as Bible readers. We've seen it so often in our world, and indeed in these verses in Proverbs, strength used to dominate and destroy. We are rightfully fearful of the idea that might is right, and we're used to the gospel of grace where strength is seen in weakness. But we mustn't, because of that, somehow get the idea that strength is always a bad thing. It's not. God is strong. He is mighty and powerful, and it is no bad thing, per se, to have a strong ruler. But wisdom will teach such a ruler what true strength looks like and how to use power. There are two keys in this section which shows the king how to use his strength. The first is humility. You can see that in verse 6. Let's read that again. For waging war you need guidance, and for victory many advisers. What is the wisdom that leads to military strength? Well, in verse 6, it's the wisdom to acknowledge that you don't know what you're doing. Or at least 
that you need the good advice and counsel of others. That is what Solomon himself did at the beginning of his reign when God asked him to name anything and he would give it to him. Let me read you some words from 1 Kings 3. Solomon says this, Now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David, but I am only a little child and do not know how to carry out my duties. Your servant is here among the people you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to count or number. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? See what Solomon is showing there? The humility to ask for wisdom, to seek advice, to not assume that you know it all. That is the path to strength. And that is how strength must be used. That's the first key to wise power, is humility. The second key in these verses is courage. Look at verse 10 with me. Proverbs 24, verse 10. If you falter in times of trouble, how small is your strength? Rescue those being led away to death. Hold back those staggering towards slaughter. If you say, but we knew nothing about this, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who guards your life know it? Will he not repay each person according to what he's done? Solomon looks ahead to a time of crisis, a time when the king's people will be under threat and in great danger. And what is needed at such a time? The answer is courage. The king needs not to falter in a time of trouble, verse 10. But note carefully with me what kind of courage is needed. This is not just personal bravery, the willingness to put yourself in harm's way. It's courage to do the right thing. It's courage to be godly when it costs. Solomon envisages a time when the king's people will be led away to death, staggering towards slaughter, verse 11. They are weak and embattled in desperate need of a savior. And at that point, the king has a decision he can make. He can say, verse 12, well, I didn't, know, I didn't know anything about it, actually, really. I'm very busy, affairs of state, there's a lot going on. I just didn't know, sorry. He can stop his ears to the cry of his poor and suffering people. He can refuse to defend the weak and save the dying. That'd be easier, wouldn't it? The king who has all the power will be tempted simply to shore up his own position in a time of crisis to retreat to the presidential nuclear bunker and wait for the worst to pass, not risk it all on some weak people who probably won't even be able to repay him. But the king in that situation needs courage, the courage to do the godly thing at the time of crisis, the courage to use his strength the way God uses strength to rescue those who are weak, the courage to believe that God's way is best, The courage to believe that godliness is more important than personal safety. The courage to believe that valuing others is more precious than valuing oneself. And it comes with a warning. If the king lacks this courage, if he saves his own skin rather than saving his own people, verse 12 reminds him once again that he lives in a personal world. That he is not his own, that God weighs his heart Verse 12, ironically, uh, in trying to protect his own life, he has turned his back on the God who guards his life. Do you see that in verse 12? God is the one who guards his life. 
And so an attitude which tries to protect oneself at the cost of others is a refusal to believe that God himself is the great protector and that living his way will always be safest and best. Instead, it opens yourself up to his judgment. And so there's the the keys to strength, humility, and courage, but we're going to see the opposite of that as well because we're going to see what happens to the fool. We've seen how wisdom wins. Now we see how folly loses. Look at verse 7. Wisdom is too high for a fool. In the assembly at the gate, he has nothing to say. He who plots evil will be known as a schemer. The schemes of folly are sin, and men detest a mocker. As one commentator on verse 7 puts it, without the wings of humility and courage, no one can reach the heights of wisdom. Someone who thinks they know it all and is cravenly trying to protect themselves is not a trusted advisor. They have nothing useful to say in the gate when it comes to planning and decision-making. In fact, even though they are desperate to preserve their own name and their own honor and their own lives, they are destined for public shame. They will be silenced at the gate. They will be given a new disapproving nickname, the schemer, verse 8. They'll be hated by everyone, verse 9. The short-term thinking which leads someone to proud self-preservation is not just sinful, it's massively counterproductive. Once you get a reputation for self-interest and cowardice, you will quickly fall from grace. We've seen it so often among our, our politicians, haven't we? But we might also think this doesn't happen as often in our world as we might like. Often the people who give most to others, who put themselves out for others, who humbly think of others rather than themselves, end up suffering as a result. We have a saying, don't we? No good deed goes unpunished. People end up being used and manipulated and burnt out. Whereas those who cunningly scheme at the expense of others often end up with power and comfort. Once again, we might be tempted to think that Proverbs doesn't really live in the real world, or at least can provide us no guarantees that living God's way really does work in this broken and sinful world. Well, to answer that objection, we need to see finally where wisdom leads, where wisdom leads in the rest of this passage. We began actually with verse 13 and 14 at the start of this series. Let's read those words again. Verse 13, eat honey, my son, for it is good. Honey from the comb is sweet to your taste. Know also that wisdom is sweet to your soul. If you find it, there is a future hope for you and your hope will not be cut off. Just as honey is sweet and nourishing for us, so wisdom is sweet and good. There is a hope, there is a future for those who walk wisely, who incline their ears to the word of God and build their house with wisdom and knowledge. But this is no Paddington Bear optimism, no glib wishful thinking as we can see in the very next verse. Look at verse 15. Do not lie in wait like an outlaw against a righteous man's house. Do not raid his dwelling place. For though a righteous man falls seven times, he rises again, but the wicked are brought down by calamity. Wickedness does not pay, says this proverb, 
But did you notice the unexpected twist in the middle? The righteous man, the one who's built his house on wisdom and has all the humility and courage that is needed for life, still might fall seven times. You may know that in the Bible, the number seven is often used as a symbol for completion. The world was finished in seven days. Zechariah speaks of the seven eyes of God as a metaphor for his complete omniscience. Jesus writes to the seven churches in Revelation as a way of writing to all his people. And so what is a sevenfold fall? What does it look like Like if you live a life where you fall seven times? Not to put too fine a point on it, it's a life of total collapse. At least from the outside, it's a complete disaster. In fact, it must be death. Proverbs, like the rest of the Bible, is living in the real world. It's very realistic about the short-term pain of the path of wisdom and the short-term gain of a life of wickedness. In this broken world, that's sometimes the way it goes. But what happens to the righteous man who falls, who perhaps falls seven times, who falls completely? Verse 16, he rises again. Make no mistake about it, this is resurrection hope. And this is the ultimate answer to our frustration about why the world doesn't seem to work as it does. It's because this is a personal world ruled and guaranteed by a personal God and he will do what is right in the end. Wisdom leads to life. And we also see where folly leads, verse 19. Look at verse 19. Do not fret because of evil men or be envious of the wicked. For the evil man has no future hope, and the lamp of the wicked will be snuffed out. Once again, we see there is no good in envying the prosperous wicked. Instead, we should pity them. Because their folly in treating God's world as if it were their own mechanical toy will lead to the eternal darkness of a lamp being extinguished. Justice will be done. And so this is the message of the 30 sayings of King Solomon. There are two ways to live. Listen to God's word, incline your heart to follow it, and you will find eternal life. Ignore it and go your own way, and your end will be eternal darkness. And yet as we end this passage and we end our little series, there are two final twists, a warning and a promise. The warning is in verse 17 to 18. Look at that with me. Do not gloat when your enemy falls. When he stumbles, do not let your heart rejoice, or the Lord will see and disapprove and turn his wrath away from him. The wicked and the foolish will fall. That is the promise of Proverbs. But Solomon warns his son that when that happens, he shouldn't gloat. Now, if you're a Bible reader, you'll know that there are times in God's word when God's people rejoice in the overthrow of the wicked, where justice is done and God's people praise him for it. But there is a world of difference between thankful relief that injustice and suffering is over on the one hand and proud sneering at others' demise on the other. When we do see the the venal or self-serving politician fall from grace. There's often very little sympathy or pity, is there? Just a crowing delight that the bad guys have got their comeuppance with the corresponding arrogance that we, the good guys, have outlasted them. 
Well, that is not the humble, wise attitude that we've seen commended in this section of Proverbs or in the rest of the Bible. Ezekiel chapter 33 tells us that even as God brings his judgment, he takes no delight in the death of the wicked, and neither should we, because we know that there but for the grace of God we go. The warning in this verse is stark. If we are someone who proudly looks down on others and mockingly delights when they fall, then we are in danger of the Lord's wrath being turned away from them, and I think the implication is, onto us instead. That's precisely the same teaching as Paul in Romans 11. If you are someone who proudly looks down on others, then you've not taken the gospel of humility and grace to heart, and so you are in danger of receiving the same judgment as those you mock. That is the warning. But there is a final, uh, slightly counterintuitive promise in verse 21 to 22. Look at that with me finally, verse 21 to 22. Fear the Lord and the King, my son, and do not join with the rebellious, for those two will send sudden destruction upon them, and who knows what calamities they can bring. Throughout this section, there's been a slightly ambiguous attitude to kings and rulers. I don't know if you've noticed that. It actually gets murkier still in the chapters to come. Rulers can be both wise and foolish, both self-sacrificing and self-indulgent, both a blessing and a burden. But here the ambiguity falls away. We no longer have a catalogue of rulers from which to choose. The focus narrows to one king a king who is mentioned in the same breath as God himself, one who brings the judgment of God on the wicked. Now, in one sense, the judgment of a king is always the work of God because of his sovereignty. And in Solomon's covenantal context, the king was supposed to bring judgment according to God's word. But this verse is very, very unusual in the Old Testament in bracketing God and the king so closely together with the language of those two almost as if they were equals, as though aligned with the same purpose, acting with the same mind, the two of them joined by the same will. And this perhaps makes us read the first verses of today's section slightly differently. Verses 3 and 4, we heard there about how a house was built, and we read that as a metaphor for both our universe and our own lives, and both those are right ways of reading that, I think. But when Solomon talks of a house that we will be built, we need to remember that that language had a particular resonance for him. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, the prophet Nathan told Solomon's father David that the Lord would build a house for him, a line of kings that would one day rule God's world forever. It would be a line founded on David's trust and faith in the Lord, on his humility and his courageous godliness. David exemplified that for most of his life. He was a wise and good and strong king. He was humble. He was courageous. And yet David could not escape the folly of sin, which puts him under the Lord's judgment. Neither could Solomon, even with the special gift of God's wisdom. Neither could his sons. And in the books of one and two kings, we see they were particularly poor at taking the advice and wisdom of others. A house was promised, a line of kings built on wisdom and knowledge and understanding and the fear of the Lord, and yet it failed and withered because of folly and pride. 
But God had made a promise. He was determined to build this house. And so one day a man came who was everything that Proverbs had in mind. The wise king, the true son of Solomon, one who listens to his father God and was aligned with him in purpose and plan and will such that you could speak of him and his father as those two. In fact, God himself in human form. One who at the very last, at the time of total crisis, was both humble and courageous and said, not my will, but yours be done. The one who won a great and mighty and strong victory over the forces of sin and death through the pain of weakness and suffering as he went to the cross. And why did Jesus do that for us? Why did he go to the cross? Because I think he wanted to obey Proverbs 24, verse 11. Proverbs 24, verse 11. Rescue those being led away to death. Hold back those staggering towards slaughter. Jesus' desire was not the death of the wicked. He took no pleasure in bringing judgment on us, even though we deserved it. Instead, his plan and his joy was to rescue those who are being taken away from death, to hold back those who are willingly and deliberately and culpably staggering towards slaughter through our sin and our rebellion. And so he gave himself up to God's judgment so that we might be pulled back from it. The light of his life was snuffed out so that our lamp would not be extinguished. He was subjected to public shame so that we might be given eternal honor. And he rose again so that even though we might fall seven times, we might rise with him. And so I know of no better way to end this short series than with the prayer of Paul in Colossians chapter 1. Would you turn there with me? Page numbers should be on the screen. It's page 1182 in your Red Bibles. And as I'm going to read this for you, I want you to see that all the themes of Proverbs 24 are sort of woven together in this prayer. We have wisdom, understanding, knowledge. We have a life lived worthy of the Lord and pleasing to him. We have good works. We have the strength to endure short-term pain for the long-term joy of eternal life, all by the grace of God. Let me read those to you, and then I'll pray in light of what we read there. Colossians 1, verses 9 to 12. Actually, I'll go to 13, why not? For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of, of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience and joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Heavenly Father, we thank you for wise King Jesus. Thank you that uh, he has lived a life of knowledge and wisdom and understanding, that he lived a life of humility and courage. Thank you that he went to the cross to bear the judgment we deserve for our folly and our pride in order to rescue us uh, from death, from staggering towards slaughter. 
And thank you that he rose again, guaranteeing that though we fall seven times, we will rise with him and not have the light of our life uh, extinguished as it deserves. And so, Father, we pray that you would fill us with the knowledge of your will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. May we live lives worthy of you to please you in every way. May we bear fruit in every good work. May we grow in your knowledge. And may we be strengthened with the power and the might we need to endure, to be patient, not to envy the wicked, but to wait patiently for our vindication and to walk in your ways. Help us to joyfully give thanks to to you. And thank you, Father, you have qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. Thank you that you have rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son you love. Thank you for our redemption. Thank you for the forgiveness of our sins. In Jesus' name, amen.